I think that what we've got before us just now in that portion of scripture that we've just read is a gift from God. I really do. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about immediately. When we begin a sermon series sometimes, especially if it's a a sermon series in a more obscure book of the Bible, then you know as well as I do that we've got work to do at the beginning of a sermon series, don't we? We've got stuff to do, usually, oftentimes. Like, first of all, we have to sometimes wrestle with genre, don't we? We've got to try and work out, okay, what sort of book is this that we're going to be looking at? Then what else do we have to do sometimes? We have to flick through the pages, digging into it, trying to work out, well, who's written this book? You know, who actually has penned this? Who authored this book? And it's, it can be, take it from me, it can be hard work, can't it? Get into grips with a sermon series in a new book of the Bible. And yet, look at this. Look at what you've got in front of you in verse 1. It's a gift from God, because what have you got? We've got a title. Praise God for this. What does the title tell you in verse 1? Do you see? We know what this is. So we know this is, first of all, we know it's an oracle. Friends, we know that this is a declaration. It's a proclamation from on high. So we know that. What else do we know? Look. We know even to whom this oracle comes. Who does it come to? comes to Israel. So it's a declaration, an oracle to the covenant community. And then, I love this, we even know through whom the oracle comes. Because who are we told about? We're told about Malachi. Something actually... That could be a man's title, because Malachi means my messenger, but more than likely, it's a guy's name. This is Malachi. So everyone's with me? Okay, this is a gift from God. We already know. Over the next few Sundays, over the next few weeks, what a privilege. We get to hear a declaration, a proclamation from the Lord Most High to his covenant community through this humble servant, this man called Malachi. So, we are already up and running in our sermon series. So, what's the question? What does God have to say in this proclamation? Well, uh, this past week on my Twitter feed, uh, for some unknown reason there appeared a link to a love letter and it was a love letter uh, from the late great Johnny Cash and he had written this the country singer Johnny Cash he had written this love letter to his then wife June Carter and in amongst sermon preparation on the south coast of Spain uh, I clicked on this link and I had to smile uh, I had to laugh I'll tell you why the theme of this letter was very similar to the beginning of this great prophetic work that you've got in front of you. Because look with me at how this begins. Look at verse 2. What does God say? He says to his people, I love you. I have loved you. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't that a lovely way for this book to begin, don't you think? And what I think could happen then is that you and I could get really entranced by this declaration of love, couldn't we? We could get really caught up with this, if it weren't for this fact, if it weren't for the really shocking, almost disgusting way the people of Israel respond to this declaration of divine affection. Because you read on with me, friends. What did they say? Like God says to them, I love you. And the people of Israel, they say, how? 
They say, how have you loved us? And I reckon every one of us, if we're paying attention this morning, we're all thinking the same thing. We know we're thinking, that is one audacious thing to say. I mean, the almighty creator God declares his love. And what do the people do? They dismiss it. I mean, they reject it out of hand. So what are we asking of these people? We're saying, how can you do this? I mean, what has led to such impudence before Almighty God? We see all of that really takes me to the part of the reason anyway, why we have landed on the book of Malachi to study as a congregation. I reckon some of you are sitting there thinking, why are we studying the book of Malachi? You're probably with me. It's usually reserved for Bible studies, isn't it? Isn't it? Sometimes it's tucked away in evening service. The minister can't think of a short book of the Bible and he's to fill it before, you know, over the summer or something. Why in our morning services? Are we, well, there's a lot of reasons for that, friends. And we're going to see them together. But get this. Part of the reason that we're studying Malachi is because of your familiarity with this book. See, whether you realize it or not, if you've been part of LCPC for any length of time, you know Malachi. Like, you know the setting here. You know the context. Do you realize that? See, what's happened in recent memory? We've studied as a congregation the books of Ezra. That was a few years ago, wasn't it? The book of Ezra. More recently, we've studied the book of Zechariah. What I need you to understand is that the book of Malachi... It takes place at a very similar time period to those books. So do you know what I can do just now? I can actually ask you, what's going on here? What's the context? What's happening in Malachi? Can you remember, friends, listen to me, the people of Israel have recently returned from captivity, exile in Babylon. And if you were here for those sermon series, do you remember what they see as they come back in the promised land? They come to Judah and they lift up their eyes and they see Jerusalem is in ruins. There, beloved, Jerusalem. And they look and they see their temple. Do you remember? Their temple is just rubble on the ground. Do you remember what Zechariah prophesied? He said, though, he said, once that temple is built, spiritual revival is going to come. Hopefully you remember Zechariah chapter 12. He said, you're not even going to need city walls. Such will be the increase in the worshipping community. Ah, but what's happened here? A few years later on, they rebuild the temple. And what happens, friends? Nothing. They rebuild the temple. And that spiritual revival fails to materialize. So do you see where they are? These people are disillusioned with God. Yes, they're at the temple. And yes, they're worshipping. But their hearts are not in it. And they are struggling under Persian rule. Struggling materially, financially. And where does it all lead? It leads to that phrase. They are doubting that God cares for them. They are doubting his love. And they cry, how can you, oh God, how can you say that you love us? And at that point, friends, I have to turn this over to you. I have to ask you, Christian friend in here, you see that scene of skepticism with God? Is it familiar 
to you at this point in your Christian experience? Like, where are you this morning in your Christian walk? I mean, are you this morning, as you gather with us here just now, are you disillusioned with God? I mean, are you disillusioned with the lack of spiritual blessing that you are seeing or that your church is seeing? Disillusioned with this? Or are you so overwhelmed with the daily pressures of life and the economic pressures that, hang on, the same thing is true of your spiritual life. It's just a conveyor belt, is it? Dry. There's no joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And has this all led to this place of skepticism, doubting today whether God possibly loves you, is that where you are? Then don't you hear it? Don't you hear what God says to you at the outset of the sermon series? He looks at you, Christian friend. He declares this morning from the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verse 2, I love you. God, this morning, saying to you in Christ, He loves you. I love you. There is this divine, sincere proclamation of His affection for those in Christ Jesus. And I am telling you this. For one, I think that is the most exhilarating start to this Old Testament book. Now, on the way to church recently, maybe two, three weeks ago, I was listening to a sermon. I will listen to a sermon if I'm driving in to church. Juliet asked me, my four-year-old daughter asked me why I do that. She says, Dad, are you trying to get ideas for the sermon? Four years old and so cynical of a father. Unbelievable. But I was listening to a sermon maybe two, three weeks ago coming into church. And I kid you not, this is a sermon that had a 30-minute introduction. I couldn't believe it. I drove all the way from Woodford Green all the way, and I was coming through that roundabout, and the preacher said, and all of that was by way of introduction. That's my American accent, just in case you are wondering. 32-minute introduction. Now, at the risk of incurring your wrath... Uh, and although this sermon will be no longer than our normal sermons, I'm going to say the same thing to you just now. All that we have said there is setting the scene it is introductory. I need you to understand this. That what God is doing in this section of Scripture in Malachi is doing way more than declaring his love for his people. What God is doing in these verses is setting out to prove his love for his people. And he does it by looking to the past, the present, and the future. And for the good of your soul, for the good of our hearts, we look at it. So let's consider, first of all, what God says about the past evidence of his love for his people. And here I'm going to try and, or I'm going to ask for the help of the younger people in here. Not so much the kids, but the secondary aged uh, kids, maybe somewhere away on holiday, but you listen up, secondary age kids, that's the secondary age kids, high school kids would tell us, maybe we can even remember this, um, different subjects, different classes in school and high school, maybe you remember, they had different reputations, do you remember that? I'm sure the secondary kids would affirm that, I can certainly remember that, it was like that when I was in school. 
PE, gym class in school. That was always the cool class, wasn't it? It was. It was certainly my school. All the in crowd loved PE, the gym class. Then, I'm sorry to break this to the, uh, the economists and mathematicians in the, in the church, but maths, when I was at school, was always the geeky class. Like, maths was always for the uber, uber smart people. And then what about history? If you can remember back, sorry to any historians, uh, history was always the boring class, okay, when I was at school. History was always the dull class. Now you see that idea there. Here, God, he throws it on its head. Because to prove his love for Israel, do you see what he does? He provides the most exhilarating and exciting history lesson. He points his people to a lesson in the past. And I want us to get it. So boys and girls, young and old, let's look at verse 2 together. What's the lesson? Do you see it? First of all, God asks a really obvious question. Boys and girls, I'm going to ask you the same question that God asks. Do you see it? He says to his people, is Esau not Jacob's brother? Boys and girls, is that right? Was Esau Jacob's brother? Yes. Love it. We're twin brothers. Okay, now to the important bit, friends. Do you see how he goes on? God says, yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I hated. And from our first reading in Romans 9, we all know to what he's referring, do we not? What happened in Genesis 25? What has God done? God has overlooked convention, hasn't he? He's overlooked, defied, overlooked the older brother. He's overlooked Esau. And what has God done? He's chosen Jacob. Though there was nothing worthy in him, was there? Nothing virtuous. God's chosen Jacob, the one from whom these people descend. Do you see what God's doing? God is confronting these people. And he's saying to them, are you really skeptical? Is that I love you? Like, are you really doubting my care for you, thinking that my affection is fleeting? Don't you remember what I've done? I've chosen you. I've elected you. I have chosen you from all the nations to belong to me, to be, to be mine. And I think London City Presbyterian Church, that is a lesson that we need to recall more often than we do. Because I think there is a great deficiency in the way that we very often view and understand God's love for us as a covenant community. We often descend into thinking like this, that God's love for us is dependent upon our obedience, that it fluctuates according to our Obedience. Don't we think like that? Don't we fall back into that default position? You know what I'm saying. We think if we witness for Christ, and if we attend church more regularly, what do we think is going to happen? We often think God's love for us is going to increase and mature and advance and develop. But by the same token, I know some of you are thinking this today. That if we do not do those things, 
And if we trip and we fall in our spiritual journey, and if our spiritual disciplines are not as they should, then what do we think? We think God's love for us. It withers away, that it decreases, it diminishes. And if you are a struggling Christian in here this morning, there is a truth that I need you to hear. Listen. In the Lord Jesus Christ and through him, God's love for you, it is an unconditional love. Now, do you see what that means? God's love for you in Christ does not vacillate and fluctuate. It does not waver. It is constant. His love for you in Christ, it is consistent. It is real and it's true. And why? For the same reason. Isn't that wonderful? What has God done for you? He has in Christ chosen you. Hasn't he? He has elected you to everlasting salvation. Please tell me that you remember that recent sermon on the second point of Calvinism. Please tell me, nod and say, yeah, I remember the sermon. Do you remember what God has done for us? Though you not deserve it. Remember like David, the shepherd boy, had that brook and surveying. Do you remember the stones and the pebbles? And what does David do? He chooses five for himself. What has God done for you in Christ before the creation of this world? God surveying the coming multitude of humanity. And he looks at you before the dawn of time. And what has he done? He has set his love on you. Friends in Christ, he has chosen you. He has elected you. Do you think God's love for you is fleeting? Look at that and see what what surety is there. What certainty is there. God has elected his people. We can look to the past and see the beauty of that. What is that for us? I keep banging on about in Ephesians chapter 1. What do we know for sure in Christ God loves us? Ephesians 1.5 In Love, he predestined us, he chose you, he elected you, and he did it in love. Then, having looked at the past evidence, we have to look at the present evidence of God's love that we see here. Now, I'm sure that many of you, if you are or have been living in the UK for any length of time, you're familiar with the BBC program, Who Do You Think You Are? You seen it? I don't watch much TV. I love that program. It's a program where celebrities trace their family tree and their family lineage. Okay, so you get a celebrity on and they'll go through all these archives. We're supposed to believe that the celebrities have done a lot of the groundwork in digging up their family history. Yeah. But anyway, they do it. I love the program for all of the wrong reasons. Because I reckon this, I reckon that the celebrities go on there thinking that the show is going to reveal that they have got a most distinguished family history. You know, the celebrities thinking that they'll go on there and it will be revealed that they descend from aristocracy. And if you've seen the program, you know what very often happens. The opposite happens a lot of the time. And it is revealed that they descend not from kings, but from criminals. You know, and it's revealed that they're from a line of thieves or some such thing. In Malachi, and at this point in Malachi, God does something 
most unusual. Because he does not at this point focus on Jacob and the people of Israel's lineage. Do you notice what he does? He focuses actually on Esau and those who descend from him. And if you know your Bible, you know your Bible. You know that if ever there was a dark family history, it's that of Esau's line, isn't it? What happens? Esau sells his birthright, doesn't he? Do you know what? I would love to ask the kids this. We don't have time. I won't. Esau left outside God's electing love. He moves to Seir. His descendants are the Edomites, aren't they? They descend into sin. They become the perennial enemies of the people of God. Do you remember that in Numbers? Do you? Where the Edomites try to block the people of Israel's path to the promised lands. Do you remember it? So these are filthy men and women. They are bad people. Now, specifically, friends, what does God say about the Edomites in verse 3? Have a look with me. Verse 3. Now look at it. Do you see what he says? God speaks of having himself. He has laid waste to Edom's hill country. Now what's in view there is a recent defeat for Esau's line. God has sought to defeat them. Read on. Verse 4. God then says, Should these enemies of the people even try and rise out the ashes? What is God going to do? God himself, directly, personally, is going to stand against these people. They will, God says here, be one day destroyed. So are you with me just now? Theirs is an awful plight. These enemies, these Edomites, their predicament, aren't you with me? It could not be any worse. God is against them. Now, if you are with me this morning, then I hope there is a question that you are just now asking of this portion of Scripture. What have we said God's intention is in this portion of Scripture? What's God doing? Do you remember what I said? He is seeking to prove his love for his people. What's the question we're asking? Aren't we asking this? Why then, if you're seeking to prove your love for your people, are you spending all of this time focusing on their enemies? Are you asking that? Like, why aren't you speaking about the line of Jacob? Why are you speaking about Israel? Why, God, are you talking about the Edomites and their defeat? And then do you see the answer? Do you see what God is doing here? To prove his love, he's saying to his people, compare your situation with those who are outside of the community. He's saying to Israel, are you skeptical of of my love for you? Are you doubting my love? Then contrast your present situation with those who are my enemies, those who are outside of Israel, outside of the camp. And then you'll see, then you'll see in that contrast how much I love you. In London City Presbyterian Church, as you minister, I, I say, we need, even now, to do exactly the same as this. Because through this week in preparation... I'd be most aware that this subject this morning is a most pertinent and most relevant subject for us as a congregation today. I I know that there are people here in this room just now who are faithful Christians and lovely Christians and they love the Lord Jesus Christ and yet at this point in their life they are struggling for assurance. 
lovely Christians who love Jesus and who are struggling for a conviction that God loves them today. Struggling to see that they are apple of God's eye this morning. Do we not need to do what God encourages here? Do we not need to compare ourselves, contrast our present situation with those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I ask you as a congregation and as a Christian, if you do that, what do you see today? Friends, outside of Christ, listen to me, people are alienated from God. Is that just a word that we bang around the church? Consider their plight. They're not just at war with Syria. They're not at war with Russia. Outside of Christ, people are at war with the sovereign and eternal and creator God. But what about you? Your present predicament today. What is that word? Reconciled. Do you see what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a peace treaty with the sustainer of the universe? You are on friendly terms with God and What about those outside of the Lord Jesus Christ today? You know it, don't you? What is it? Ruled by sin. Today they are under the dominion of darkness. But what about you in Christ Jesus this morning? What's true of you? What has God done by grace? Taking you from that dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You see how marvelous it is. Your present status in Christ is glorious. But what about those outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words this morning. They live with condemnation for their sin. They may look like you. They may work in the same place as you and study in the same place as you. Consider their plight. They are facing wrath. They are facing hell. And what is Christ Jesus for you? The door to the prison cell of your condemnation, it has been flung wide open by the Lord Jesus Christ. He set you free, brother and sister. He's liberated you. You are redeemed. And what does that mean for you right now? Even if you can't feel it, like even if you cannot recognize the blessing of God, even if you don't feel that God is near, there is one thing that you can be sure this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is this. God loves you. He loves you. And that is the message here. And then we end. We've seen the past, we've seen the present, haven't we? But now, just a word on the future evidence of God's love for his people, the future evidence. Now, on the surface of things, See this last verse that you've got in front of you in verse 5. All on the surface of things. <laughs> it seems really straightforward. Have a look with me. Look at verse 5. God says to his people, Your own eyes shall see this. And you're going to say, Well, great is the Lord beyond the border. But you're with me. That seems straightforward. It seems too complicated. It seems as though God is seeing his people in the 5th century BC. They are going to witness the destruction of the Edomites. And what shall happen when they witness that destruction? Their lack of assurance and their skepticism they have here is going to turn into assurance and they're going to be rejoicing in God. Okay? Seems straightforward. I love this. 
It's not as straightforward as all that. Many of the commentators point out this, that the Edomites throughout the Old Testament are very often used figuratively in Scripture. You know this, don't you? That the Edomites are used symbolically throughout the Old Testament and are used to symbolize all of the enemies of God. And if you take that into account, do you see what happens to verse 5? Suddenly, it takes on an eschatological flavor. Doesn't verse 5? Suddenly, you hear that God is speaking, not just to the 5th century BC. He's speaking to you in verse 5. And what does he say? He says, one day your eyes are going to witness the destruction of the unjust. One day your eyes are going to see it. One day your eyes are going to witness the condemnation of the people who reject God and who are entirely unholy. And what's the point? What's the point of verse 5? That on that day, what Israel experiences will come to you. That through that judgment will come to you assurance of God's love. Listen to me. That one of the greatest elements of the last and final judgment of mankind will be the expense of love on that day that the people of God enjoy. We're going to see in that condemnation of the unholy just how much God adores and cherishes his church. There is coming for you, Christian friends, future evidence of God's love. And I close with this, a question for you, if you're a Christian. Do you see this morning why you are so much more privileged than the people of Malachi's time? Do you? Let me rephrase the question for you. What evidence do you have, Christian friend, that God must love us? That he must love his church. You know the answer, don't you? The greatest monu- monument that has been erected to God's love is that cross that we see on Calvary Hill. Isn't that right? What do we see when we look at the cross of Christ? God so loved the world. You see it? He so loves you. He has sent his son, the one he loves. And what is he? He's your righteousness. God has sent his beloved son to do what? To die for you. He loves you so much that he's seen his son bear your iniquity and your sin. And so if you are doubting this morning the love of God, if you are skeptical, look again to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Calvary. And surely now we all rise up, don't we? In renewed worship renewed vigor and we live in all things for this glorious loving and gracious God isn't it a great message we have at the beginning of Malachi what does God say to you in Christ he says this morning I love you God says to you I love you I have loved you what joy is in that God loves his church And he shall forevermore. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for uh, these wonderful words.
in the book of Malachi. Lord, you call the Edomites here the wicked country. And we thank you that you have brought us by Christ into the holy land. You call these Edomites the people with whom you shall be angry forever. And so we praise you this morning that in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are people with whom you shall be gracious to, merciful to, and loving all the days of our life and forevermore. Lord, we thank you for that cross. We thank you that Jesus Christ has borne our iniquity in his body on that tree. And we do pray that his would be the glory today and forevermore. In Jesus we pray. Amen.